This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. And now, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Robert Rolfing, the president and CEO of Desert Mountain Energy, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as DME and in the United States on the OTC as DMEHF. Desert Mountain Energy is a resource company actively engaged in the exploration and development of helium and rare earth gas properties in the American Southwest with a substantial land holding at the Holbrook Helium Project in Holbrook, Arizona, the world's best address for helium with prolific historic production. The company intends on becoming completely vertically integrated, producing helium from their wells in Arizona for delivery to offtake candidates within the region. The consumption of helium, along with recent prices, has proliferated as its uses in the medical world, in computers, and other arenas has grown. We're going to learn a great deal today about this resource, the company, and the man behind it. Robert, welcome to the program. Thank you. Now, I've been friends with your VP of Capital Markets, Don Mosier, for many years. Don called me a few weeks ago to ask me to look at your company as he was considering the idea of bringing me in to purvey the story to our audience. This would mean that Desert Mountain Energy would become a sponsor, which you now are, in full disclosure. After hearing the story from Don, learning about helium and the uses for it, because honestly, I hadn't really taken a hard look at it prior to the call. Don spoke of the potential numbers, including the size of the operation, the success with the wells drilled already, the number of wells you're planning on drilling, the current and future demand for helium, the offtake, including right there in Arizona, your control of the process from start to finish with total vertical integration, and what I perceived was an underexposed story in the market given that. I immediately called my broker after the call and became an investor before I'd ever know that you and I would work together, before that ever was a possibility. I say this up front because it's rare that at first glance, right after a phone call, I'm in as a shareholder. I take more time than that. And that was not Don's intention. He didn't call me to pitch me. He was reviewing the story because I needed to know it before I felt I could successfully contribute to purveying a bat. If not for this project, Robert, you would not be in the healing business, would you? No, I would not. It's something that I have studied for almost 20 years to get to this point. Now, I got lucky on it. I'll freely admit that, that where I thought the helium market would start to go about 20 years ago. And it just took a lot longer for it to hit that point, And also a lot of luck. Now, you come from an oil and gas background. You're basically an engineer from what I understand, and by nature, not promotional. You believe in real results in the ground, and you believe those results should drive interest in the company and therefore the market. Give us, if you don't mind, a snapshot of your background on how you found yourself in the business of the production of helium. Why this project and why now? I have been in the oil and gas business since approximately 1990, and I've owned my own companies. I had three companies, a operational company, a drilling company, and basically a geologic and leaseholding company is the way I had it set up. And I started those back in 1994, and I operated specifically in Oklahoma, Southwest Kansas, and a few other places. When I worked previously in Southeast Asia, in Alaska, when people ran across an odd element in the gas, they would just flare it or they would just be done with it and vent it. In 1999, there's a gentleman out of Oklahoma who was drilling a well in Arizona for oil, not for helium. And he ran into some hard issues and he asked me if I'd come out and just keep an eye on the well because I still had a residence here at that time. So I just came out and said, sure, not a problem. I'll help you out. Even though I had quite a few drill rigs and other things going, it was just, what do you do to help out a friend? And I came out here and I did a gas sample and because the gas that they had coming out of the ground wouldn't burn. And they weren't interested in it because at the time, the price of helium was low and the price of natural gas, methane, was real high. And so there just wasn't a market. So the well got plugged out and abandoned. Then in that process, I started really learning more about what makes this 
even be able to have helium here. I knew very little of it. And that's what really got me intrigued into trying to do it. Then I would come out in the spring and fall every year, and I started doing geology on it, physically walking through. So I have physically walked through or driven across the first 42 well sites. I know where I'm going to drill. We, over time, eliminated probably out of 114 sites, we've cut it down to where geologically it makes more sense. And we've run seismic and had a chance to do satellite analysis. And so we put all those together into it. So that's the short of a long, long version. Let's explore some of the fundamentals of helium right now and supply and demand. You have a burgeoning demand and a looming supply deficit or shortage, factoring in biomed, computer technology, the uses of helium. We need our audience to fully understand why helium is so crucial. If you have a computer, you're involved with helium. So many of us, especially at my age, I'll say you're younger. So at my age, because I turned 65 this month. We're the same age. When we get to be this age, you tend to have gone through an MRI. And anyone who has had an MRI has had the benefit of helium because you can't have an MRI without helium. Liquid helium cools the magnet that make it possible. You've had a CT scan, the drugs with that, it's worked. Even for COVID-19, there's been some experimentation because like with Heliox, divers use that for ultra deep dives and it goes back into the lung tissue easier. They've used it to impart medicines in with that to get it into the patient's lung so that they didn't have to interpretate so much. They had some unique, really good responses with that. And then you get into the computer aspects, Tesla's any electric vehicle manufacturers, they're trying to cut down on the power usage for the computers. And that is one of the problems. So how do you do it? You run the hard drives on liquid helium. And in a couple universities have got it in university form as high as decreasing the amount of energy required down to 28%. And yet they can run it 78% faster. Speaking of liquid helium, I've learned that there are some transportation issues in that regard, specifically concerning offtake, that if you're transporting non-liquid helium, the gas itself for long distances, you're going to lose up to 20% of that. And that really increases the cost to the offtake partner across the board. And I didn't know this, but right there in Arizona, you have potential offtake partners. Well, you probably do. You can't name them right now. You're talking to several companies, but you've really eliminated eliminated a lot of that leakage because you don't have to, first of all, convert it to liquid. You can transport it in its gaseous state and you can do this all in Arizona. I had no idea. And most people think of an offtake contract as if it's coming out of the well and you strip out as much nitrogen as you can. So you're shipping a crude or enriched amount. To go longer distance with that, it's not cost effective to be hauling a whole bunch of nitrogen, which is part of what you breathe to just vent that into the air. So any offtake contract, they want it to a 90 to 95% purity. You've already done all the heavy lifting for them and you don't send it to them and you're only going to be paid 250 to $280 in MCF. For me, it's like, why leave this money on the table? Because we can process it locally. We can add in addition to that 250 to $280 in MCF, Even if we just ran it up to balloon grade, we're going to add another $840 per MCF on top of that. So in fact, we're taking a product now we're going to be making $1,100 per MCF for almost the same thing. Because the difference between balloon grade and what a direct offtake contract would be is between 5 and 9%. That last little bit. That's it. Why leave that money on the table? And then when you get into trucking, some of our customers that are probable customers, they're all saying they want to run their own trucks. They will supply the trailers and the trucks because they want it when they want it. So you have to mix and match the output to what your customer's demand would be. Plus, be able to take care of a customer suddenly requires more. The way it used to be, if they were coming out of, example, Amarillo, Texas, where the National Helium Reserve was, 
products. And if it's 122 degrees ambient air temperature and the company they're buying it from won't ship it at night when it would be down to a low of, say, 100 degrees, they want to ship it when it's 122, they could lose up to 16 to 18 percent of that liquid helium or just a gaseous state in just that few hour drive, that 14 hour, 15 hour drive. And that's one thing with us being so close, even from the furthest probable well location, it would be 276 miles to the furthest customer and it'd be 92 to the closest possible customer. They all want to truck it. Great. Easier for us. You don't have to maintain a trucking fleet at all to make deliveries. No. Again, it's the outlay of cost for it. Even though you're not shipping an explosive, it's not considered hazmat. You do have to have a tanker endorsement. You don't have to have the upgraded licenses even for it because it won't burn. Yeah, it could blow out and it'll freeze and evaporate into the air and it's gone. There's nothing to go on the ground. There's no environmental damage possible. You mentioned earlier that it was pure luck that you came upon this project. I think luck is a combination of preparation and opportunity. And the Holbrook Basin happens to hold the purest, from what I understand, helium in the world or some of the purest in the world. And that is really, really important as well, isn't it? It is because most helium, like whether it came out of Kansas or Oklahoma or in Canada, wherever it is, normally thus far, it has always been tied up with hydrocarbons and they're having to strip it out of a hydrocarbon chain, which costs more. And by only having our base underlying gas is nitrogen, which everyone breathes. So you don't have the environmental concerns about dealing with that. Additionally, there is an area in Arizona that the percentage of helium would be down to like a 0.3 to 1%, but it was 90% CO2. Yes, there was big volume there, but you can't vent CO2 due to CO2 sequestration rules. And why even do it? You can only use so much dry ice. When the market for the dry ice, by the time you get it there, again, you've lost too much. My solution was stay away from that. Let's focus where we can lower our costs. Because to give you an idea, as far as the processing to the lowest form, to deal with that much CO2, you would be lowering your net profit by approximately at least 60%. And what we're doing is very cost effective. The argon that we will be stripping out will actually be real close to covering the actual operational cost, just one byproduct. So it really, for the area where we stayed focused, and we'll look at, we're staying away from hydrocarbons, we're staying away from CO2. We are, by design, I am trying to make this company as green as I can. People under the age of 40, under the age of 35 and 30, actually, that may equate an operation like this because they just don't know, with oil and gas, your background, and the carbon footprint that those companies are perceived to contribute to the environment. And even though we've covered the remediation or mitigation of CO2 in your story, you still have to generate electricity to drive your project. So I have to ask you on behalf of our audience, how environmentally friendly are you otherwise? You do live in an area which has a lot of sunshine. I've been through there many times. How do all these factors into your green footprint beyond what you've already discussed? Since I've had so many years to work on this, and I knew I was going in an area with no methane, and there's no gas lines that you can just connect into to run compressors or generate electricity and also just to run the entire processing plant, I knew I had to do something. Well, at the elevation we're at, it's 7,500 feet. The amount of UV you get is fantastic. So actually, seven years ago, I had started working with a university that was in Europe that actually was looking to create a photovoltaic cell that used a different type of silicone. And you have no lead, you have lowered cadmium selenium in the cells, and you can generate 38% more electricity from the same cell. Again, it's a little bit different take on it. It suffice to say, it is a lot more cost effective. Then at that altitude, at 7,500 feet, you just have so much more energy. And the specific property that we pick actually has a southern tilt of 11 degrees, which is exactly what is required for optimum sun up there year round, because where the plant is going, they average 352 days of sun per year. So it's pretty good. 
We're not worried about it. For the days that they have cloudy or less low UV days, it comes down to within a specific two-week time span every year. It's pretty predictable. And we would just put that into our downturn time for processing facility maintenance. You just kind of figure on it. So it's a lot of planning. And then we're locking in our costs by using solar. You live in California, the real high off-grid power that you have to get, it's super expensive. So I'm taking one of the numbers that normally you cannot control. I'm putting it under company's control. And that helps maintain, well, over a long time span, because the type of solar cells we'll be using have 40-year lifespans instead of 20. So we can maintain the high level of what we need in an area. So we're actually green, which was what my goal was. As you say, there's a lot of people that, at least me and my operations, I always tried to be as green as I could. You don't spend money one way or the other. You don't spend it to either clean it up or something will happen. So if you don't even have that issue there, then you're never even worried about a cleanup. You eliminate it totally. And then when you're dealing with the helium aspects and how it's required for a green economy. Yeah, I'm an oil and gas guy. As my dad used to say, God gave me a brain, use it. And now I'm to that age and it's like, now I'm starting to sound like the old man. You mentioned lifespan, and I want to talk about the lifespan of the project. And you drilled wildcat wells, which happened to pay off for you. And when I was speaking with Don about the economics on the phone, and correct me if I'm wrong, the numbers that I was hearing, potentially $35 million per well per year with 55 wells planned. Are those numbers right? That just sounds very exciting. And I know that you're extremely familiar with mining, with gold and silver, and these economics you don't see in those other parts of the sector. You don't see them at all. A lot of people have been slow to get to helium. There are some areas in the world where folks are trying to go into helium now, and they're looking for government support for the infrastructure to actually strip and process the helium. And it's called polishing is actually what it's called. You polish the helium to 99995% purity. So when you get into those, they're looking for government help. Since I had been working on this so long, and again, Having the solar power is one of the key and critical issues to this. You have 100,000 acres, as I understand. What does that mean with regard to life of project? Since we're drilling wildcat wells, and I freely admit that, and that is one thing that most, even major oil companies, currently average well under 30% success rate when they're drilling wildcats. And for junior companies, it's down in the 14 to 17% range. So I put that our success rate thus far, and I know somewhere along the way, I'm going to drill dry holes. I will guarantee it. But I've had 20 years to really study this and bring it forward. So that adds to the overall success rate. And the type of wells, when we look at Pintadome, which was the highest grade, longest producing pure helium field anywhere in the world, and that's approximately 35 miles away as the crow flies from wells one and two, they operated it for 13 years. Their bottom hole pressures were not that great to begin with, and they operated almost as cheaply or as low as they could. The pressures that we're looking at in well number one, to give you an idea, the starting pressures for the Pentadome field. When they started out, they were at approximately 104 pounds flowing pressure. We're starting at over 900 on the first well. The second well was completed into a different pay zone, and it was about 348 pounds. What it gives you in, across the pay zone that, like in the second well, it's not as high pressured, but we only perforated five feet. We only put 20 holes through the pipe into those lower zones. That's it. 20 holes. That's, That's nothing. what we're getting it. No. And there's so much more. And that was only one pay zone. Like in the second well of a 78-foot-wide pay zone, I only shot five feet. That's it. There's five possible pay zones in each well. The one thing, we did have duplication. We knew we had run seismic. So we had a real good handle on exactly the thickness of the target zones that we're looking at, even though one was an anticline feature and the other one's a domo feature. But we were able to prove up the seismic. Which in this business, when you're drilling rank wildcats and when you run seismic and then a lot of times you're just tickled death if you're plus or minus 10 or 15 feet and we were plus or minus 18 inches to a foot from surface down. This surpassed your expectations. It really was. And it shows in some areas we had really good seismic and in other areas that were real close to a railroad track. 
there's too many trains coming by every five minutes and they're a mile and a half long. We knew we would have problems and we thought, we're not going to try this across a large area. There'll be one little two mile section. We'll give this a shot. It didn't work in short, but that's what you get into business. So it came back to doing base geology. And for the lifespan of the wells, because the thickness of the zones that we're looking at are considerably thicker and larger, once we actually put them in production, because no one has produced from these zones for any type of gas or oil or anything for 270 miles. So there's nothing close to compare this to. And that's one thing a lot of people have really asked, well, why don't you do a total flow test? And why don't you do this? Well, number one, I'm not going to flow a well, invent it into the atmosphere for three days and not know for sure what's in it. I am not going to take a chance on it because you could have one thing to start with, it could change. And what if I was all of a sudden started putting something poisonous into the air? By the time you get there and try to shut it in, you're polluting, be it CO2 or whatever. I was not going to do that. And the state prohibits it. So you do a series of controlled tests with different size chokes, just restrictions in effect, and you flow it for 24 hours. To give you a best, it's not a guess, but it's pretty accurate because you're using a series of numbers and established procedures. So we really feel that based on that, we're looking at in excess of 15 years. And that is also why the solar plant is going to have panels that will be highly cost effective for in excess of 40 years. I won't be around anymore. Well, it's clearly a legacy project. And when we build something like that at our age, it's got to be meaningful or why bother? I mean, you could certainly retire right now, but you have passion about this project. I'd like to discuss the fundamentals of, well, how you're capitalized and when you foresee going into production, that road, how expensive it will be and the share structure of the company. Right. Well, at the moment, we have just under six about 58,813,000 shares, I believe, is what is currently out. So just round numbers, approximately 60 million shares issued and out. In our last financing that we did last September, initially we were looking to raise 5 million, and then it turned into 9, then it went to 13 million. And then between Don and myself, we turned down an additional 38 million because it was not proper time to dilute the company that much at those prices just that had been silly and shareholders would have by all right hang me out to dry for being that silly. So we raised $13 million. Now, when we did those private placements, we had where people at $1.60, we issued warrants and those warrants would be good at $2 would be the exercise price on them. And we also put the caveat in there that if the share price was at $3.50 for 10 consecutive days, we could accelerate those warrants instead of being out a couple, three years we could accelerate those warrants. And that basically has been my goal from the start. And that's why we put it in there. I can raise another $16 million for no fees and no further dilution other than what's there. And that dilution is already figured into the long term of about 70 million shares. So it's already accounted for, really for fully diluted. And for the share structure of a company this small to have that much net worth is phenomenal. You go back a year ago, we are trading at about nine cents US in March with a market cap of $3.6 million. A week ago, Monday, we closed at 100. $68 million market cap in one year. That's what we've done. We look to make that a whole lot more because based on getting back to how long the wells would last and the value of the wells, it could be up to anywhere from 8 to $30 million per well per year, just based on the price of healing. And it could fluctuate. It could go up and go down. But when you have this, when we are the fully vertically integrated company, we're drilling it, we're producing it, we're processing it, we're selling it. We are the middleman. We take care of the entire process. That just puts all that money into our shareholders' pockets. I really do look forward to having the opportunity to pay dividends. That is my goal. It's like there's been a number of people who say, well, Robert, what price would you sell at? I'm not doing this to make five or 10 bucks a share. My bottom line is I will not consider it 
until we get to $30 a share. Because I want to build a company that is a legacy company that pays dividends. That's my goal. And when I heard that from Don, Don Mosier, who you referenced and we both referenced, I got on the horn with my broker and I invested in your company, which again, I rarely do. Everything is extremely speculative. Even this conversation in full disclosure is speculative. If you're going to risk, if you've mitigated a lot of that risk and you've spent a lifetime looking at risk mitigation, which I think you have as basically an engineer and a geologist, then you knew exactly what to do with this project. Robert, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I look forward to many more in the coming months. We'll have Don on the air at some point, and I look forward to meeting you somewhere in Arizona, perhaps over there in Holbrook. That would be great. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. I've been speaking with Robert Rolfing, the president and CEO of Desert Mountain Energy, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as DME and in the United States on the OTC as DMEHF. Learn more about the company by visiting their website, DesertMountainEnergy.com. I'm Ellis Martin. You may assume that Ellis Martin is a shareholder on any of the companies that sponsor the Ellis Martin Report, which means he has a vested interest potentially in them. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with David Suda, the president and CEO of Gold Terror Resource Corp, trading under the symbol YGT on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the United States as TRXXF. Gold Terra owns a 100% interest in the Yellowknife City Gold Project, encompassing 790 square kilometers of contiguous land within 12 kilometers of the city of Yellowknife. The project is located in the prolific Yellowknife Greenstone Belt, covering 70 kilometers of strike length along the main mineralized break in proximity to the former high-grade Khan and Giant gold mines, which have produced over 14 million ounces of gold. The Yellowknife City Gold Project is close to vital infrastructure, including all-season roads, air transportation, service providers, hydroelectric power, and skilled tradespeople. Dave, welcome back to the program. It's nice to have you on the air today. Thanks very much, Ellis. It's great to be back. It's been a while. It has been a while, but you have been busy in the ground over there at the Yellowknife City Gold Project, significantly increasing your inferred mineral resource, and that is a 64% increase. What have you been doing over there? We've been drilling, Alice. We drilled all of last year, and with all that drilling, we found a bunch of more gold. No, in all seriousness, we've just been busy with our noses to the grindstone with the gold price environment that we've had we've been able to be funded so we added 64 percent, as you said which was a big ad in 16 months and we hope to match or better that in the next 16 months we've got 20,000 meters of drilling planned we're well into that program here for 2021 on an exciting new target that's a potential, and I can say this, I'm not asking you to say that, that's a potential $2 billion resource in the ground. It's definitely a district size play, and this is what you and Gerard Paniton, the chairman of the company, were really hoping for and looking for when we first got acquainted about a year and a half ago. Yeah, when Gerald joined, he said, this has the potential to be an ODT tour. He was squarely set on making an agreement with Newmont. And so while we drilled on Sam Otto and Crestorum, which were targets that came to us when we joined the company, they were already there. Gerald was squarely set on making an agreement with Newmont so that we could drill on the Campbell Shear, which is the extension of the structure that produced nearly 13 million ounces of high-grade gold. So here we are, we're drilling on that. We started in January and we're well into it. We're putting out assay results. We've seen some really good holes already. In our most recent press release, we had an intersection of 10 grams over four meters. We hope to keep doing that here. We're going to have assay results flowing through the spring, and we're going to take a pause from drilling during the breakup, and then we're going to hit the ground running again with the drill in later summer. So it's a very exciting time for us because we've got our eyes set on finding another con mine or another giant mine here next to the city of Yellowknife. You have enough in the bank to take you through this process for the rest of the year, don't you? We're fully funded for 20,000 meters of drilling in 2021. That is amazing. What are your thoughts on the gold market right now? We're, I think we're holding steady around 1,700, 1,700. 
30 U.S. in that area, which is about 22, 23 Canadian. It's a pretty decent, stable market. There's not a lot of activity right now, but it's a great time to take a position in a potentially undervalued company such as yours. It's an interesting time to look at the company. Yeah, Alice, we feel really very strongly about the gold price. The environment is in a perfect sort of situation here where you've got an economic backdrop for higher gold prices. And at the same time, we haven't seen that heady run that we've seen in previous cycles. You can tell that the market, it just wants to take off. People are waiting on the sidelines and that's always the way it is, right? The bar is set pretty high, I think, by investors because there've been a lot of sectors that have been working. There's been a lot of momentum in other sectors. But when that momentum comes to the gold space, hang on to your hats, folks. It's going to be a, a ripper of a rally. This feels a lot to me like 10 years ago, like 2011, just before things really hit in 2012 and at the end of the year, because we're really looking at quantitative easing beyond all conception with all the printing of money we're doing down here in the U.S. It has to absolutely affect gold at some point. We feel really confident with $1,700 gold. We don't need 1900 or 2000 We think we're going to see that with resource that we just published. We used very conservative parameters. We used $1,500 gold. We want to be in a position to add ounces. We never want to have to take any ounces off the table by using overblown parameters. So with a $1,500 gold assumption, 1.207 million ounces in the ground is looking very good to us. And we certainly want to be adding to that rapidly. And we think we can with 20 thousand fully funded meters of drilling. And your share price right now on the TSX Venture Exchange is at 25 cents. In the U.S. on the OTC, you're at about 32 cents, give or take. Dave, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. I look forward to catching up with you in the very near future. Thanks very much, Ellis. Pleasure to talk to you every time. Let's make sure we do it sooner next time. I've been speaking with David Suda, the president and CEO of Gold Terror Resource Corp, trading under the symbol YGT on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the United States as TRXXF. Visit the company's website, goldterracorp.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Jonathan Weisblatt, the new CEO of Rockridge Resources, trading as ROCK on the TSX Venture Exchange and RRRLF in the U.S. Rockridge Resources is a publicly traded mineral exploration company focused on the acquisition, exploration, and development of mineral resource properties in Canada, specifically copper and battery metal projects. The company's flagship is the Knife Lake Project, located in Saskatchewan, which is ranked as one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Meet the new CEO and catch up with the latest news on Rock Ridge Resources. John, welcome back to the program. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Alice. You're expanding the drill program at Knife Lake because you have some very decent results from the first drill holes. The strategy is really good. You don't expand the drilling program unless you have those good results, and now you're up to 2,100 meters. Correct. Every great investment, every great strategic decision in the company comes with building a solid thesis, a working thesis. And the recent drilling up at Knife Lake is confirmation that our thesis is starting to play out. And that thesis is that Knife Lake is a remobilized portion of a primary VMS deposit. So what that means in very basic terms is that there is mineralization that exists. That mineralization is going to occur in other areas that have never been tested. What happened was in late February, early March, we did a bunch of geophysical surveying of the property airborne geophysical surveying, which yielded a bunch of very significant targets in the region of in and around Knife Lake. The most recent drilling took place four to five kilometers away from the deposit area. And the first few holes were very indicative, had visual indications of BMS style mineralization, very much common of what we were seeing at Knife Lake. So with that being said, we decided to expand the drilling program from 1600 meters to 2100 meters. Specifically, you're taking a hard look at the Gilbert Lake North and South targets, where very little historical exploration has taken place in the past. You're beginning to test with encouraging mineralization and you are expanding out, aren't you? That is correct. So historically, the previous owner of the property put 300 holes into the Knife Lake deposit. There was very little regional work done on the surrounding areas. We spent the vast majority of the recent drill program testing what were very prospective targets that came out of airborne geophysical surveys and that was at the Gilbert Lake North and South target areas. There was some intersected visual indications of BMS style mineralization early on in the project and that's when we decided to increase the meterage 
from 1,600 meters to 2,100 meters. Let's review the inferred and indicated resource in the area to begin with. How much copper have we got in the ground or copper equivalent? So total resources on a copper equivalent basis is roughly 200 million pounds. Well, that is extremely significant. And I don't think, although I am a shareholder of Rockbridge Resources, I don't think the potential value of the company is necessarily reflected in the market currently. Why do you think that is? Let's just go back to the valuation for a second, and then we can talk about why it's it's not being reflected in the share price. If your listeners want to go to our website, Rockbridge, resourceslimited.com. They can have a look at the presentation. It was just updated for April. There's a valuation comp in there. And if you take your eyes along the left side of the x-axis, you'll see Rockridge and we're trading at two cents on a total enterprise value for total resources in situ on a copper equivalent basis. And then if you run your eyes along that x-axis, you'll see a ticker symbol FOM. And that is one of the closest geographic comparables. Foreign mining is located closer to the Flon area, not too far from where Knife Lake is. And that stock is trading closer to 30 cents per pound. So there's a very large valuation gap. We believe that with the drilling catalysts and the results that are pending, Rockridge Resources will have a significant re-rating in the market. One of the reasons why we're trading at that discount is because we don't have a very large institutional following. My job as institutional portfolio manager for the past 20 years is to introduce the Rockridge stories to some larger, more mining-specific funds to help fill that gap. So more eyeballs, more attention, and that's going to come from a very successful drilling campaign today and one hopefully later on this year. This is not a stock that you necessarily trade, although there are some traders involved, I'm sure. This is a stock that you get involved in, a company you get involved in, and you hold it as long as you possibly can at your own risk comfort level. And let's see what happens. Let's see where it develops. When you mention institutional investors, that's sort of a mixed bag, but you bring in a positive aspect of that. I'm sure you're approaching institutions specifically involved in mining that are not just going to potentially dump their interest when the market rises. Am I right? Correct. The best type of shareholders are any type of shareholders who share the long-term vision and support of the management team and the board of directors. So a lot of mining specific funds that I've spoken to over the last couple of weeks and months share the same macro vision as I do. So hard assets will participate in a rising inflationary environment. In that category includes copper and other base metals. We're expecting a devaluation of US dollar for years to come. With that being said, you want to find very good assets run by very good management teams in very good and safe jurisdictions. Rockridge Resources matches all of those. If you can find demand from some larger institutional organizations, that will help lift the valuation and help to close that spread between Rockridge and some of its larger peers that I was mentioning. If you want to talk about currency and currency economics, Canadian currency at a 25 to 30% discount US and probably a 40 or 50% discount higher if you get into the euro or the pound sterling, it's a nice opportunity when you, you can buy it Canadian dollars. For sure. And the beauty about, let's take it back to Knife Lake again. So Knife Lake is a deposit at or very close to surface. If we can find some more copper in that area, then you're looking at your costs in Canadian dollars you're looking at a deposit that's very close to surface. So a lower price capital investment for an open pitable mining resource. And again, converting that to Canadian dollars in cost terms, it makes for a very viable economic project somewhere down the future. Which makes Canada very, very, very attractive for investment purposes. Also with regard to jurisdiction, I understand Saskatchewan holds the number five position according to the Fraser Institute of one of the best mining jurisdictions to do business in in the world. That is absolutely correct. And that is why one of the reasons we're very bullish on the project at Knife Lake. Let's review the management team of the company. I'm the CEO of the company, just joined in March. The president and its founder, his name is Jordan Tremble. Jordan has 15 years of capital markets experience and has been involved in the resource sector for a number of years. We have an excellent technical team led by Eagle Plains. Strategic advisor is Ron Edelitsky, who's very well known in the Canadian mining community. Ron worked at the Knife Lake project during its discovery years in the late 60s and early 70s. So he provides a very unique perspective on the project for us. A number of very valuable directors, Joe Gallucci, who's the chairman of the board. He is the head mining banker at Laurentian Bank. Rick Kazmersky, who is a director as well, has excellent geology experience in the province of Saskatchewan, was the former VP of geology and expert 
aspiration for Cameco. And that just names a few of the key players. And let's review the share structure of the company. Sure. So shares outstanding around 73 million. The company just completed a financing two and a half million dollars into the treasury. The current drill program will cost about 1.2 to 1.3 million. So the leftover is cash and the till. We're ready to go for the balance of the year. So 73 million, about a $11.5 million market cap, fully cashed up, and very clean capital structure. John, it's great to speak with you again. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Speak with you soon. I've been speaking with Jonathan Weisblatt, CEO of Rock Ridge Resources, trading as ROCK on the TSX Venture Exchange and RRRLF in the United States. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Jordan Trimble, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S. Sky Harbor Resources is a preeminent uranium and thorium exploration company with projects located in the prolific Athabasca Basin of Saskatchewan, Canada, which was ranked as the best mining jurisdiction to work in globally by the Fraser Institute in 2017. The company has been acquiring top-tier exploration projects at attractive valuations, culminating in five uranium properties totaling approximately 200,000 hectares throughout the basin. In July 2016, Sky Harbor secured an option from Denison Mines to acquire a 100% interest in the Moore Uranium Project, now the flagship project, which hosts the high-grade Maverick Zone. The company is run by a strong management and geological team who are major shareholders with extensive capital markets experience as well as focused uranium exploration expertise in the basin. Hey Jordan, welcome back to the program. Nice to have you on the air today. Thanks for having me again. As a shareholder of Sky Harbor, I'm very excited that the drill program is commencing at the Moore Uranium Project. Tell us all about what's going on right now. Yeah, absolutely. So we announced this morning we'll be commencing here shortly a 3,000 meter drill program at our flagship and high-grade more uranium project and is over on the east side of the Athabasca Basin, proximal to mining infrastructure, project that we've been focused on for the last several years. number of high-grade zones of uranium mineralization that have been discovered at the unconformity and in the sandstone. And more recently, we've been focused on finding deeper deposits in the underlying basement rocks. This is where most of the recent high-grade discoveries have been made in the Athabasca Basin. As we spoke in our last few interviews, we announced us pretty good results from from our last drill program late last year, we had our longest continuous zone of uranium mineralization ever discovered at the project, 17 and a half meters of 0.72% U308. And within that 10 meters of 1% U308, again, all in the basement rock. Very exciting result for us, given the relative infancy stage that the basement exploration and drilling process is at. And I think we've just scratched the surface to a much larger zone of mineralization at depth. We think with these upcoming drill programs, we will be able to delineate higher grade mineralization and zones in these basement rocks. So that we'll start with this 3000 meter program and 10 to 12 holes. We do have plans for another program following up on that later in the year. And then ultimately we'll be working towards a maiden resource estimate towards the end of the year, early next year, as we continue tapping into higher grade zones of mineralization at what's called the Maverick Corridor. And just a quick note too, and as we announced in the news release, we do have plans for some exploratory drilling on some regional targets at the project. The one target area that we're going to do a little bit of work on, starting with some geophysics, which has just kicked off. It's called Grid 19. It's just about eight kilometers northeast of the Maverick corridor. So it's totally different conductive corridor and target area. What's interesting about it is it's on the eastern side of the project area. And over on that side, there's a big intrusive body called the Moore Lake Complex. And it's poorly understood. It hasn't seen a lot of historical exploration and work done. There's a lot of potential there. Usually when you see these intrusive bodies, you have the plumbing, if you will, for the deposition of deposits, mineral deposits, and wouldn't be surprised if we found other metals in there as well, like nickel and cobalt and even some copper. But we think there's uranium there and we're going to be drill testing that in this program as well. I see that you've mentioned copper values of up to 2.3%, which is fairly significant, but you're 
you're a uranium company, what do you do with assets like that when you find them? Do you call them uranium equivalent? It was an interesting discovery over 100 meters below the unconformity, so well into the basement rocks. But what it shows is that there's a strong mineralizing system at depth in the basement rocks. So you can think of it as an indicator mineral. So we know that there has been high-grade mineral deposition in these basement rocks. Seeing copper values like that and other indicator minerals is very positive. It shows that there's the potential for high-grade uranium. And so, as I mentioned, we will be following up on those results and continuing to drill test into these basement rocks. I think it's just a matter of time before we tag something that's very high-grade and much larger. And so keep an eye out for news flow from this program, which will be starting up shortly. Well, in my opinion, you've got three things going for you in addition to the great management team. You're about 10 miles or 15 kilometers away from Denison. You are in probably the best mining jurisdiction in the world for uranium, period. And you've got the highest grade of uranium on the planet as far as I know. It's all there. Look, the Athabasca Basin is really the only place in the world you want to be looking for uranium and developing projects at the highest grade depository of uranium. It's been a mining district for many years. There's a lot going on up there right now. And there's been some notable discoveries more recently using some new exploration methods and thinking. And again, we want to emulate the success that other companies like NextGen and Fission and more recently ISO Energy have had. And then and there's not many companies. We talked about this earlier. There's not many active uranium companies out there. There's very few. So it's not a crowded sector. Money coming into the space, as we've seen more recently, only has a few names to go to. And just as a segue into an update on the macro picture and, and what's happening in the uranium mining sector, you've seen just in the last several weeks here and, and just even in the last few days, a number of mining companies purchase uranium directly in the spot market or from secondary supplies. So we saw Denison just in the last couple of days here announced $75 million financing to purchase a few million pounds in the spot market. Shortly after that, UEC announced a $30.5 million financing to purchase material. And this was all in the back of about a month, month and a half ago, Yellow Cake raising 140 million pounds to buy material and buy Yellow Cake. So it's an exciting time. The market's continuing to tighten. I think you'll see this trend of both mining companies and physical holding companies continuing to raise capital to buy uranium in the spot market and draw down secondary supplies and inventories. And ultimately, this is going to lead to, as I mentioned, a tightening of the market. And it's really going to ultimately force the hand of the utility companies that have to come back to the market that have to start contracting. And we don't need to wait to see the first few utility companies sign those higher price contracts. The mining companies and the physical holding companies uh, and the capital markets are doing that. And it's, again, going to force their hand and it's going to create a very exciting environment for uranium investors. You can already see the energy market shifting after the new president was elected just a few months ago. We're moving away from fossil fuels, whether we like it or not, and we're moving into clean tech. We're moving into clean energy. Uranium has always been cleaner, maybe cleaner than it ever was, and it's reflecting the interest in the generalist market. We're getting investors from all walks of life, from all ends of the political spectrum, so it's almost like an agnostic sort of investment opportunity. And as a shareholder, I'm pretty pleased with the growth in the market lately. What do you attribute that to other than the obvious that we discussed. This new wave of interest that's come into the sector caught everyone in the industry by surprise, but we'll take it needless to say. And was like you said, it was driven by what was seemingly a very short and quick turn in the sentiment around the election and started with the $1.7 trillion climate budget that the Biden administration has proposed, obviously within that nuclear and the development of SMRs is included. But there were a number of countries last year that emphasized their plans to be carbon neutral and to decarbonize their electricity grids in the next several decades, the US being one of them, China being another, big economic powerhouses that are recognizing the climate crisis that we are facing and ultimately realize that in order to address it, they are going to have to decarbonize their grids. And in order to do that, as you and I have spoken about, you have to include nuclear. It's as simple as that. And I think the market finally has woken up to that. And we're seeing a number of new nuclear proponents come out of the woodwork and 
big business leaders that are getting behind it. And I think you'll see that continue. And so this is obviously all very positive for the sentiment around the nuclear industry and as a result, the uranium mining industry. But, you know, as we've talked about, you know, a lot of people aren't aware of the supply side restraints that we are currently facing. We've now seen a major supply side response play out over the last five years where you've had a lot of mine shut down. You've had a lot of project deferrals and production curtailment as a result of the low uranium price, which I'll note just ticked up $2 in the last 24 hours, back up to $30 a pound, which again, still well below the average all-in global cost of production, but it's good to see the price moving in a pretty quick fashion with the $2 move. But again, you've seen this major supply side response play out because of the low prices, which was exacerbated by the pandemic, where at one point you had almost 50% of global primary mine supply offline. Even with all of these mine restarts and production ramping back up, you still have a structural supply deficit. The primary mine supply is still not going to meet global annual demand of about 180 to 185 million pounds annually. So even with the ramp up, you're still going to have to rely on inventories and secondary supplies. So again, at some point, there is a tipping point. And I think we're getting closer to that. And certainly with the recent actions of some of these companies and investors pouring money into the sector, people are recognizing that this inevitability of the uranium price starting to make big moves much higher, much like we've seen in previous bull markets, starting to see the early innings where money's coming in and it wants to take advantage of that opportunity. And so, like I said, it's exciting. It's a good time to be a uranium company. I think there's still a lot of runway given that the valuations are still relatively low. There's not many companies. We haven't seen dozens of new uranium companies pop up that will come later in the cycle, but still in the early innings. And uh, I think there's a lot of room to move from here. At what point do you entertain discussion with the majors? You're an exploration and development company, and you're probably a long way away from that. But I've seen these acquisitions happen very fast. At what point do you and the shareholders say, okay, well, let's talk about it? Look, it's a great question. And it's the ultimate goal, right? We would like to transact and get a deal done and be acquired by a larger company. I think the answer to that is we obviously feel like we have a lot of value we can add at the project level, both at our flagship project, More Lake, and with our partner companies at our other projects. And and two, like I said, I think we're still in the early days of this uranium bull market. And ideally, you want to transact later on in the cycle and you obviously want to get the best price possible. So it's something to keep an eye out for. We still have a lot of work that we can do here in the coming months and coming years. Let's remind our listeners of the share structure. Yeah, so there's about 104 million shares issued in outstanding. We trade around a 36, 37 million dollar valuation Canadian. So again, still a relatively low market capitalization. We've had a number of warrants exercised over the last several months. Uh, we're well capitalized now with about five million in cash and stock. As as you may recall, we've carried out or transacted on several of our projects with partner companies, option deals that bring in some cash and stock to Sky Harbor. So we're well-funded for all of our exploration plans at our flagship project, More Lake, this year. And we have partner companies funding the bulk of the exploration and development work at our other projects. Gordon, it's always great to catch up with you. And the market certainly is shining on Sky Harbor right now. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Thanks for having me, Ellis. I've been speaking with Jordan Trimble, President and CEO of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S. For the Ellis Martin Report and Sky Harbor Resources, I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com Join us next time for more opportunities to discover on the Ellis Martin Report. Meanwhile, subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit EllisMartinReport.com 